This morning, uh, the, the, the conversation is going to be around this idea, uh, a home that's still standing. A home that's still standing in a world that is falling apart. Do we want to be a part of a home that remains still standing? Several years ago, some of you remember Hurricane Ike hit the Texas coast, right? Uh, down around the Galveston area. And I don't know who picks the name for hurricanes, but Ike is an intimidating name, right? Sometimes they're like run for terror from Hurricane Eugene, and you're like, that's not scary. Like, I've never met a Eugene that I was afraid of. No offense, uh, but I'm not afraid of you, so I'm going to use that name, right? It's just not scary. But Ike kind of sounds like maybe there's like a Harley involved in like leather and, you know, like... Hurricane Ike uh, did indeed hit the Galveston area, but this morning I, I want you to, to, to think about specifically the, ha- the town uh, or the little area of Gilchrist, Texas, a uh, little community on the Boulevard Peninsula, um, and it's a small little, almost kind of like a big neighborhood, only about 200 homes. And here's the thing about Hurricane Ike hitting Gilchrist, Texas, is of those 200 homes, 199 of them were completely to the foundation flattened, except for one. One home was still standing. Look at this picture. Uh, it's fascinating. You just see nothing. And there's this one home. And that's an interesting story. But the fact is, I think it's actually a visual glimpse of what God wants for you. Like in a world that's falling apart, I'm convinced that we serve a God who wants to build for us a home that will still be standing. As a matter of fact, I actually think he wants that for us more than we want that for us. That's how good he is. That's how faithful he is. This morning, we're going to look at how does God build a home that will keep Standing. So grab your Bibles if you would. I know we saw the creed on our video, but we're going to say it together before we jump into our text this morning. If you're a guest today and you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you today. Uh, but we're going to invite you to hold up your Bible with us. And we're going to say this creed together before we jump in. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind. And give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Genesis chapter 24. We'll be there in just a minute. Genesis chapter 24. Uh, last week, uh, we were in First John. So I told you to go to Revelation and hang a left, right? Well, we're going to Genesis this week. Last week, we were on page like 959. This week, we're on page 16. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, page 16. Genesis chapter 24. We're going to be in an interesting story this morning, but before we jump into the story, I want you to, to, to let um, it kind of marinate in your soul that we're in the book of Genesis. We're in the book of beginnings. The reason I think that's an important uh, place to, to kind of park this morning is I believe God is still in the business of new beginnings. Like we serve a Genesis God. That that is who he is and that is what he does. And I believe God's still in the business of new beginnings for families that are struggling, families that might have a a difficult season that they're facing. Listen, I I believe God's still in the business of new beginnings for marriages. God's still in the the beginning of new, uh, the business of new beginnings for relationships. That's who he is. He's the God of beginnings. 
I love that we're in the book of Genesis because I think God cares about your story. God cares about your story and he cares about the next chapter that he wants to write in your story. This, this chapter that we're in here this morning is, is a love story. That's a different kind of love story. It's a different culture, a different time, and a different setting. But this is the love story of Isaac and Rebekah. And interestingly, Genesis chapter 24 is the longest chapter in the whole book of Genesis. If you're new to the things of the Bible, let me just tell you, the book of Genesis is a pretty important book. There's some pretty incredible stories in the book of Genesis, and yet the most airtime is given to a love story. Because God cares about that. You know, the, uh, God cares about our love story. He actually wants to be the author of that story. He gives this entire chapter to it. It's 67 verses long. Don't worry, we're not going to read the whole text this morning. Uh, we're we're going to look at just a little bit of it. More attention is given to this love story than the actual exodus of the people of God in slavery. Interesting. It's the second longest single narrative told in the whole book of Genesis, second only to the flood. Now, there's life stories that are told, but this is the second longest single story told, one of the longest chapters in the whole first five books of the Bible. And it's about a home that at the end of the day was still standing. Look at uh, just the first nine verses of the story, and then we'll summarize from there. Verse number one, now Abraham was old. Anybody just feel the scripture speak into your heart this morning? Abraham was old. You just said, Dad. He just completely called you out on the front row. We just had a utterance. He just said, Dad. Abraham was old, and apparently so was John DeAngelis. Well advanced in years. And the Lord... You're so going to spend the summer grounded. The Lord... Was that you that said it? Did I, oh, God, I was making sure I didn't get you in trouble for nothing. I mean, it would have been worth it, but... Um. <laughs> the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, hard stop. Okay, just a second. So, sometimes the Bible is descriptive. Sometimes it's prescriptive. Sometimes it is describing an event that happened in a moment, in a place. Sometimes it is prescribing what we should do on a regular basis. Let me just be real clear. I believe this is descriptive and not prescriptive. At the end, when we invite you to respond to the Lord this morning, we are not going to say, put your hand underneath the thigh of the person next to you, right? Uh, that takes, takes it to a whole nother level. Touch your neighbor and say, you know what, anyways. Um, so we're not going to encourage that. And now if that disappoints you, Let's talk afterwards. That's weird. Um, this is just describing the way that a special vow that we see appear a couple times in Scripture happens. And it's not what we do today, thank the Lord. Um, and if you want to know more about it, we can talk about that later. Verse, here's what this vow is about. Uh, verse number four. Uh, that I may make you swear. Verse number three. Sorry, I can't uh, uh, count. That I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven... The God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. He's not being judgmental about the Canaanites. This is not racism. This is not prejudice. This is religious. He's saying, don't 
choose a wife for my son, which again is descriptive, not prescriptive. I, I don't encourage you to go to your favorite friend and be like, hey, go find a wife for my kid. He's saying, listen, don't, don't go find a wife for my son who doesn't have the same worship that I do. It, this had nothing to do with nationality. It has had everything to do about spirituality. But this is the vow that you will go to my country, to my kindred, and take him a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said, and this is a really good response. The servant said, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. So go find a woman, tell her to follow me back here. What if that plan doesn't work? That's a great question. Go find a wife. Who? Where? I don't, back to the country. From where? I don't know. Like there's not a lot of instruction given here. So I do love his question. He's like, what if this plan hasn't been fully developed? (laughs) You know? Like what if that doesn't exactly work? Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Because God's doing a new thing. God's promised us a new land, right? So we're not going backwards. And then he says this. I love this. The Lord, the God of heaven who took me from my father's house, from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I'll give this land. He will send his angel before you. You'll take a wife for my son there. But if the woman's not willing to follow you, you're free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. What unfolds in the next few verses is that he travels to that land. He goes outside the city to the well, which would have been the normal custom of the day, and he prays to the God of Abraham. And he says, God, I'm asking that you'll answer this prayer and provide a son for for Isaac. And this is how he prays. He says, God, what I'm asking that your sign would be is that when someone comes to draw water from the well, if I ask them for a drink, may they not just give me a drink, but also offer a drink to my camels. It would have been completely normal. Uh, it was part of the culture. They, they highly valued hospitality. So if you asked for a drink at a well, they were going to give you a drink. That's not necessarily going to be the sign. But they would also offer water for the camels. As he finishes praying, it says immediately, he sees Rebecca coming up to him. He says, hey, can I have a drink of water? She gives him water and gives water for his ten camels. And he gives her a big, huge gold ring. And she's like, would you like anything else? Okay, that's not in the text. Then he gives her some gold bracelets. And then she ends up taking him back to her family's house for him to tell the story. I have this master who follows God, the one true living God. God's blessed him. He has a son. He desires that his son would have a wife who belongs to uh, the worship of this same God. Could he please come back with me? And his family's like, this seems to be the will of the Lord. Like in one verse. Surely more time passed. Surely there was more questions, right? When I went to meet with my father-in-law and asked for Maurice's hand in marriage, he had been a career military guy. Like he knew what his salary would be because it was literally published on a website. And he's like, well, what, what do churches pay preachers? I'm like, well, it just depends. He's like, then how, how are you going to take care of my daughter? I had to go to him with pages of a yellow legal pad of sample budgets based on an unforeseen possible income, right? There's none of that here. 
There's like no legal pad. Like sure seems to be the will of the Lord. And so she does return back home and they are married and it's this great love story. And uh, if you're like, hey, don't some of the patriarchs in the Bible, don't they have like multiple wives? Not Isaac. It's just Rebecca. This great love story, I think, has some principles that still apply today. If we look at this house in Gilchrist, Texas, one more time, what you see is the reason it kept standing is it was built differently than the other houses were built. The owners of the home asked that the home would be built 14 feet above ground on piers and beams and pillars. The home was was built on a different kind of foundation, and that's why it kept standing. There's a lot of things in this chapter that I don't think are necessarily foundations for how we do dating. I don't send my friend to go figure that out and take camels with them. That's not how we do that. However, there are some principles that I believe still serve as foundations for us today. We're just going to look at four. There's a whole lot more than four uh, peers on this house. But we're going to look at four foundations that I believe a house can still be standing when the rest of the world seems to be falling apart. God wants to build your home on some unshakable foundations. And the first one is influence from godly leaders. It is important to note that the love story of Isaac and Rebekah starts with Abraham. It's important to note that there are people farther down the road of life who played an important role in this love story. As a matter of fact, verse 1 matters, and we kind of laughed about it and even got some some uh, comments from the peanut gallery here uh, about the fact that Abraham was old, right? So we know uh, that Moses wrote this, and you're like, Moses, that doesn't sound very nice. I mean, he's old. Like, we just started off calling him old. And not just old, advanced in years. You're like, bro, could this get worse? No, he's well advanced in years. Like, he was good at advancing in years, Right? I mean, it's just old. And some of you are bracing for whether or not I'm fixing to call you out right now. And I'm not, Kathy. Um, and, as, and as a matter of fact, we also read in verse 2, that's true of this servant as well. He's the oldest one. But here's why I think that's important. The people in this family story that were important key leaders, they live long enough to see the faithfulness of God. Right? Because it doesn't just say he was old. It's not just that he had lived on planet Earth. The Lord had blessed him in all things. He had experienced the favor of God. He had experienced the blessings of God. What we need, if we're going to see God build a home that keeps standing, is we need some voices speaking into us who've lived a little life and who've seen the faithfulness of God. They've been through some stuff and their home is still standing and they're speaking into us. And what I continue to watch happen is I continue to watch young families looking for counsel from just their peers, from people who lived exactly as much life as they have. And I think that's a healthy thing, but that's not best to be the only thing. If the only voices are speaking into me is the voices who are walking with me, then I'm probably going to lose some perspective Some perspective that's gained by living for a minute and seeing the faithfulness of God and seeing the blessings of God and seeing the favor of God. And the fact is, sometimes I talk to a saint who's walked through some stuff and they've got more faith than I do. They've experienced the faithfulness of God and therefore it's birthed more faith in them. And what I want to do in my generation is borrow some faith from the generation a little farther down the road than me. When God does that, he'll build a home that'll keep standing. Marisa and I have been married about two years, two and a half years, and 
went on staff at this little church plant and one of the guys on staff uh, together, um, he and his wife, they had three teenagers who were in our youth group at the time. And all three were just sharp young people. I mean, we were like, if we ever have kids one day and they turn out like these kids, we'll be like, okay, life's good, right? And so we're like, we got to find out why. Like, what's, what's special about this family? And so we literally like kind of invited ourselves into their life. They were older than us. They, they lived a little life. And man, when you're young and newly married and people who have teenagers, they seem like ancient to you, right? And yet they were kind enough to invite us into their life as though we were peers. And I'm telling you, it's, it's shaped our life. Like our perspective of life has been benefited from John and Mary Evelyn Howard. And amazingly, like he texted me yesterday and said, uh, he texted me in a group of other young pastors, which was just so life-giving to me. Um, <laughs> he said, you know, with Tim Keller's passing, if you don't know who that is, don't worry about it. But he said, with Tim Keller's passing, I just think of you younger guys and here's some encouragement for you. He's still speaking from a little further down the road into our life. I'm just telling you, if, if we're going to be in a house that's going to keep standing, we probably need to admit that we don't have it all figured out. <laughs> we need somebody to speak into us. The psalmist said, I have been young, and now I am old. And I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. I want that kind of faith to speak over me and to speak into me. And by the way, I, I want to say this too, right? Uh, we, we spend a lot of time on this hill with teenagers. And I've noticed that a lot of parents are like, man, I don't think my teenagers want to hear what I have to say anymore. And so they kind of take a step back. And I just want to challenge parents this morning. Your kids don't have to like what you say in order to need what you have to say. They don't have to enjoy it. They don't have to affirm you. They don't have to be like, you know what, mom and dad, that was great counsel. Thank you for guiding my steps. If you need that as a parent, I don't think you know who the parent is. Right? They don't have to like what you have to say. They're teenagers. They don't like anything. Except for Dr. Pepper. Like, Garrett, I'm talking to you while you're on a camera right now in the house of the Lord. It's an addiction. We need to start a support group. Okay. Parents, please stay engaged. Parents of young adults, listen, you're still their parents. Like, there, there won't be a day that you won't be their parents. And if you're walking with Jesus, they need your light to shine into their life. And let me say this to grandparents. <laughs> Those kiddos need you, right? Like, who should be proclaiming truth over them? Who should be praying over their little souls? You're not done. This is how this thing's supposed to work, that one generation would proclaim to another the glories of God so they might set their hope in him. When God's building a home that will keep standing, one of those foundations is influence from godly leaders. Here's number two. The second foundation that we'll look at this morning is identity in another kingdom. Identity in another kingdom. It was so important to Abraham that Isaac would have a wife who shares what matters most with him. Not a racial bloodline, a spiritual bloodline. That's what mattered the most to him. He kept telling him, go back to my country, to my kindred. Right? We, we want the, the soul to be on the same journey. And I think when a family knows who they are, like we are followers of Jesus, that's our identity. 
Like we belong to another kingdom. That's who we are. Which means our value system looks different than the culture that we're in. And our language is different from the culture that we're in. And our priorities are different from the culture that we're in. As a matter of fact, we talked about this last Sunday. The culture we're in might think we're completely nuts. That's okay. We belong to another culture. Right? We're just here temporarily on this journey. A few weeks ago, I shared Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an identity that's secure in the eternal realm. That's actually who we are. When we came to faith in Jesus, we got a new passport immediately. We're going to the Dominican in a week and a half, and we still have a couple people who haven't gotten their passport yet, right? Because the government's running behind. I'm just so glad the kingdom of God never gets overwhelmed. They never run behind. COVID has never shut their offices down. The kingdom of God is still handing out passports on the daily. We receive a new identity. And when our family knows that that's the identity that matters most, that's unshakable. Right? Writer of Hebrews talks about an unshakable kingdom. We belong to another kingdom. Let me say this to parents and grandparents. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. If your children and your grandchildren can instantly tell me what your political views are, but they're not sure where you're at spiritually, then I would challenge this morning, we have placed our identity in the wrong kingdom. If our grandchildren are like, I can tell you everything my parents and grandparents think politically, but I think they believe in Jesus, they go to church. Man, I'm telling you, if we want a house that's going to keep standing, then our young people need to know this home is built on Jesus Christ and him alone. And everything else is secondary. As a matter of fact, the way we view politics is just through his lenses. He's the priority. He's the king. And everything else flows through that lens. Everything else submits itself to that identity. Interestingly, that family who had that home built in Gilchrist, Texas, that kept standing, three years prior to Hurricane Ike was Hurricane Rita. Again, not a very intimidating name. Now, Hurricane Margarita, that's scary, right? But (laughs) Hurricane Rita, I don't know. Three years prior, they lost everything they owned to Hurricane Rita. And so you know what they decided? We need to let somebody build our home differently because of what we've been through, because of what we've survived. That's the gospel narrative, folks. What the Lord has brought us through, what he's restored, the broken pieces of our journeys, and he's put it back together. Why would we want our home built on anything other than him? That's gospel identity. He's brought us through too much to let our identity be rooted in our possessions, in our positions. The foundations of a home still standing when everything else is falling apart is influence from godly leaders, identity in another kingdom. Number three, investing in other people. A home that's marked by Not taking, but investing in the world around us. Caring for those who are hurting. A home that's marked by extra mile generosity towards one another and towards the world around us. 
So the, 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 I told the story, but the verbiage is important here about, about how this servant approached Rebecca. Look at verse number 17. So she comes walking up with her water jar. The servant ran to meet her and said, please give me, look at this language, a little water. He just asked for a little water. Can I just have a sip? A little water from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. She quickly let down her jar upon her hand, gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Has she ever met a camel? It's like literally what they're known for. Right? Has she not been to the zoo? So I was curious, how much water are we talking here? Because I have no idea. I have never hung out with a camel. Apparently they spit. That was in Aladdin, right? Watch out, they spit. Is that Aladdin? Yeah? Or is that a llama? I thought it was a camel. See, I don't even know the difference. That's how... It's a camp. We have, now we have division in the body of Christ. All right. So I looked up how much water does a normal camel drink? I don't know how long was this journey and whatever, like just average. The average camel drinks 20 gallons of water in 13 minutes when given the opportunity to do so. Like when it's just refreshing itself. So that's not like a super tired, exhausted and dehydrated camel. So it might be worse than this. At the minimum, 20 gallons of water. Like, so she's got a little gallon jar-ish. He had, home slice had 10 camels. Right? Like, he asked for a drink of water, and she's like, mm, how about 200 gallons? I love that this relationship starts with extra mile generosity. Like, man, I'm going to tell you, listen, in high school, one of the things I was attracted to, to Marisa, and we were just friends. We weren't even like, whatever. And I was like, she's got a servant's heart. Like, she's like in leadership, not because she's like wanting to be out front, because she's like a, how can I serve? When we started dating, she's working at a special needs daycare, and I'm watching how she's dealing with some of these these kids who are just having such a hard go at life. And she was so compassionate, and I'm like, man, let's let's do life together. Will you marry me? Right? Like this heart of a servant changes everything. I shared the story last summer. I, first night of vacation Bible school last summer, I look up and realize my wife's out in the foyer serving families. Ethan's up here leading music. Garrett's on the stage wearing a purple tutu for the Lord. I was like, oh, I didn't like, oops, we're serving together. Right? And I just think if we want to see a home that keeps standing, it's got to be, you know what? We're serving a cause bigger than just us. We're not in the consumer business of how can we take, but how are we as a family serving the world around us? I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of hurting people around us. It's interesting talking about the home today because a couple of weeks ago, Jerry Stringer, uh, Jerry Springer passed away. Jerry Springer made us face the reality that we're all crazy. Right? We watched Jerry Springer and we're like, I can't believe that. Oh, I've said that. (laughs) Right? It's like horrifying. And the reality is, Jerry Springer might have passed away, but the legacy that we're all broken continues to live on alive and well. 
that drama is unfolding in our home and in the homes next door to us. And if we're not going to be the ones who are serving, hurting people, who is? When everything else is falling apart, if we're a home that says, how can we serve the world around us? And I think that starts with us saying, how can we serve one another? As we're going into the summer, I want to challenge you students. Not how is my sibling going to make me happy this summer? How can I invest in serving you? How can I invest in serving my parents? And if, if husbands and wives thought, how can I serve you? Not how do you serve me? How much different what our homes look like? And that's not just true in our homes and in our community. It's true in this church as well. There are so many opportunities for you to say, how can we as a family serve the Lord together? We have needs in Temple Kids. We've got Vacation Bible School coming up in uh, about seven weeks or so, eight weeks. Listen, there's plenty of opportunities that we can serve together as families. And I believe when that's part of our foundation, that's God building a home that will still be standing. It will keep standing. So foundations of a home that will keep standing. Number one is influence from godly leaders. Number two is identity in another kingdom. Number three is investing in other people. And here's the last one, and by far the most important one. Intimacy with God. Intimacy with God the Father. I love the language of verse number seven. Abraham says this. He says, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of heaven. Think about that. Like the one who sits on the throne of the universe. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. The God of heaven spoke to me. Isn't that incredible? Come on, somebody. Is that not amazing? The God of heaven spoke to me. Here's the thing. That's not Abraham's story, y'all. That's true for you, too. He wants to talk to you in just as intimate of a way. In some ways, even more so. The God of heaven wants to speak to you. He's inviting you into a personal relationship with himself. When, when I'm saying, listen, here's what my foundation is going to be. It's just a relationship with God. There is no storm that can take that from you. There's no struggle. There's no failure. There's no weakness. There's no mistake. There's no hardship that can take that from you. Here's the thing. There's times where godly leaders can let you down. Matter of fact, it's actually kind of likely that they will. It's possible that we get identity confusion and get our heart wrapped up in the temporary. Even likely. And it's real possible that we have moments that we're not thinking about how can I invest in the world around me? It's what have I gotten lately? But here's the thing. The moments we spend in pursuit of intimacy with God the Father, nothing can take that from you. He invites you to hear his voice, to sit with him, and to know him. Sometimes I think we're so concerned about how can I dwell in this home with peace. Well, it's when I dwell in the presence of God. Then I don't ride the roller coaster of what the atmosphere of the home might be today or tomorrow. I abide in his presence. That's how we abide in peace. And I want to say this specifically to people who are single today. If you're like, well, God's not currently building a home right now. As a matter of fact, I haven't even like 
met with a home builder yet. Like we're not even, we're not even on the market. Here, here's what I would say to you. Today, God wants to build your life on intimacy with him. Maybe you would say, man, hearing this is hard for me because I have a spouse who's not all in on these things. Here's the thing. Intimacy with the father is nobody else's responsibility. And by the way, nobody else is held accountable to whether or not you're walking with him. You're not accountable for anybody else's behavior, but nobody else is accountable for yours either. He's just inviting you to have a relationship with him right here, right now, today. Nothing can take that from you. I know I say this a lot, but he's not playing hard to get. He's not playing hide and seek. He's available and inviting you into intimacy with him today. Because he wants to build something. That'll keep standing. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And if we could kind of make that fit with our, our, our perspective this morning, unless the Lord builds the house, it probably ain't going to keep standing. Like he's the home builder. And he builds that home primarily on himself, on a relationship with himself. That's where this whole thing begins. That's what he is inviting us to. Last month I heard Priscilla Schreier share an amazing story. She told a story about being in South Africa with her family. And the last day that they were there, she'd finished speaking at a conference. They had the opportunity to go on a safari. I kind of leaned in as she's telling this story. That's a bucket list thing of mine. Like, I hope to go on a safari one day. She has... Three teenage sons, if you don't know that about Priscilla Shire, Tony Evans' daughter. And so she said the morning came for them to go on this incredible safari that had been provided for them. It was free. And her teenage boys did what teenagers do. They complained that they had to get up early. And she did what moms do. She guilt-chipped them, right? She was like, you are having a free safari, and you're going to complain about getting up early. Do you know how many children would love to be on a safari so then they get in the little Jeep and they take off. And she thought, I hope this isn't lame. <laughs> I just total mom guilt chipped them. Like, what if the animals don't come out today or whatever? Oh, no. And so she literally was feeling a little anxious of, I hope this isn't a dud. And then the, the Jeep stops and the guide gets out all excited because he sees a herd of zebras. And the first thing she thought was, my kids have seen zebras at the zoo like a bazillion times. They're not going to be excited about zebras. But she said the guide was so excited that they couldn't keep going. They had to find out what the big deal was. And the guide said, you don't understand. This is the first day I've seen that baby foal return to the herd. She said, why is that such a big deal? He said, well, you know, the, we all know the stripes on a zebra are as unique as the human fingerprint. Specifically, that's true on the the face of a zebra, the guide said. And so when a baby foal is born, the first thing a mama zebra does is take that baby away from the herd. And for weeks, they live in isolation. For weeks, the only zebra that baby zebra knows is the face of its mama. Because as its eyes are developing, she wants to make sure that little baby knows whose mama's face is before we ever return 
to the herd. And literally, I think that's the invitation of God the Father to us. Like before we get in this world full of influences, let's just know the face of the Father so well that even on the hardest days we can distinguish His face from everything else. And He's inviting you to that right now. As you know, Life goes in seasons, right? Life isn't linear. Even if you don't work in education, we, we ride the roller coaster of fall and winter and spring. And, and so this summer... I. I think a lot of times I watch believers come into summer and we almost take off our faith. Like I'm taking a vacation from pursuing God over the summer. I'm just chilling, man. That feels like work or responsibility. And I just want to challenge some of you this morning. What if this is a season? What if this summer is a season where you got to know the face of the Father better than you ever have before? Like that, that when August rolls back and you start hearing about everybody getting their kids ready to go back to school, you're like, hey man, good for y'all. I just know I'm more familiar with the face of the Father in August than I was in May. I think that's available to you today. Like, you don't have to earn that, work for that, jump through hoops. Like, he's inviting you just to hear his voice, to sit with him, to hear his word, to commune with him. Today, I don't know if you're in a season where you'd say, I don't know who farther down the road is speaking into my life. I challenge you right now before we leave today, I would challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit, will you give me a couple names of some people farther down the road of faith that I could ask, that I could take the initiative and ask to go to coffee and say, hey, would you please speak into my life? I don't have it all figured out. I would appreciate a perspective that's been a little bit uh, longer with the Lord than mine. Maybe today you'd say, I'm spending my energy investing in an identity in my temporary kingdom, not my eternal kingdom. And I need to surrender some stuff. I need to ask God for some passport renewal. Maybe today you'd say, I'm, I'm stuck in a season that's been all about serving me. And I need to be challenged, what are, what are we doing to serve those around us? To serve those in our own family? Maybe today you'd say, I just, I'm not making space to look on the face of the Heavenly Father. What might it look like if I made a priority of that during this season of life? I believe those are principles that nothing in the world can take from us. That's how God wants to build a home that will keep standing.